and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. You may also know that I'm privileged to be the author of HarperCollins' newest multi-volume series called Master Mentors. I write one easy breezy book each year based on 30 of my favorite guests from this podcast, and I share a short transformational insight from each of them paperback digital print and on video master mentors volume two with 30 new mentors 30 new insights was just released and volume three coming out next year and today's guest has already off camera agreed to be featured in volume four as i write 10 volumes over 10 years for the master mentors series based on the on leadership podcast now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast cannot believe after 250 interviews taped and about 240 released at this iconic thought leader, author, coach, speaker, and friend of mine has not yet joined us. You're going to recognize him because he's one of those thought leaders of our generation that has had an incomparable impact on our leadership styles and the cultures of our organizations. Now, in our generation, I'm 54, there are about eight or 10 names that all of us recognize. People like the founder of our company, Stephen R. Covey. His partner, Hiram Smith, Brian Tracy, Les Brown, Liz Wiseman, David Allen. There's other people that are kind of up and rising. People like Susan Cain, who wrote Quiet, and Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor. There's about a dozen people that really round out my generation's thought leadership around professional development and leadership. And then there are three that have something in common. You know, of course, Spencer Johnson as the author of Who Moved My Cheese and John Gordon as the author of many books, including The Energy Bus. And today's guest, Patrick Lencioni, who together the three of them have formed this unique triumvirate of being able to master the parable to transfer ideas and knowledge and self-awareness into how to become better leaders. It is Spencer, John, and our guest today, Patrick Lencioni, that are really the three, in my opinion, the only three that have brought the parable continuously throughout their writing style. And I'm honored today that Patrick Lencioni is joining us. Welcome, Patrick, to On Leadership. Scott, it's great to be here. I'm excited. I can't wait to talk to you. Honored to have you, Patrick. Your books, of course, are iconic. You are the CEO of The Table Group which is in many ways a complement to the professional development space that is uh, performance improvement and building leadership capability and, and, and great cultures. Uh, in many ways, you are a competitor to Franklin Covey. And I'm sometimes asked, well, why with the mouthpiece of Franklin Covey would I interview people that are competitors? Well, as you know, our founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who passed 10 years ago, one of his many tenants about how to be a highly effective person is to have what he called an abundance mentality. Right. The opposite, of course, a scarce mentality. We just believe psychologically, philosophically, that we aren't the experts in everything. We are the experts in some things, but it's people like you and that list of names that I mentioned that really provides invaluable resources to individual contributors and people, leaders alike. And so today we are honored to shine our spotlight Onto you. Your most recent release, I actually saw it in the airport last night flying in, called wow. The Six Types of Working Genius. The tagline is a better way to understand your gifts, your frustrations, and your team. Patrick, take a few moments before we get into your latest thinking. Will you revisit your professional career, including some of the books that you've written and some of what you're known for, so that everyone in the world watching today and listening has a great sense for 
why you've now written this masterpiece. I'll be glad to, but let me just say something. We, I've never felt like a competitor. Well, I didn't feel like I was worthy to be a competitor of Stephen Covey and, and you guys, but, but that abundance thing, I talk about the circle of influence, the circle of concern. And I remember reading Covey's early stuff, you know, the, the seven habits and, and all of your books. And we were talking before I came on today. And I was like, this is a man after my heart. I love everything he does. I can't believe I haven't met him yet. So, so I don't feel, I've never felt like a competitor. We, we feel like there's so much work to do in the world to help organizations get healthier that uh, everybody who's doing it, it it's, it's, it's good stuff. And I remember when the Speed of Trust came out and I had written the five dysfunctions and people were like, ooh, is this going to compete? I was like, no, he's going deeper on the first one on trust. So yeah, it's yeah. all good. It's all good. Now, my career, really fast. So, okay, I grew up in Bakersfield, California, not a very sophisticated place, first-generation college get my first job out of college at Bain and Company. I'm at a management consulting firm. I was really distracted by the fact that the organizations we worked with were dysfunctional and we weren't helping them with that. We were doing all the smart stuff around technology and strategy and all that. So I, I said, I wanna do that. And then I worked at Oracle after that, which was a relatively young company. That was a hard culture, but I learned a lot. Went to another company called Sybase. And then I was there with a few of my friends. I got a a job offer from a company that had a big operation in Utah, actually, where you are. And I almost moved there, but then I realized I had this wonderful team with me. And so we decided to start our own firm, The Table Group, 25 years ago, three weeks ago. You know, that three weeks ago was a 25-year anniversary. So I've had The Table Group since then, but when we started it, we didn't have any books. And I wrote a book, but we were going to just take it to Kinko's and give it to our clients because we were just consulting and people liked it. And then they started asking me to speak. And then I wrote another book and they kept asking me to speak. And then I wrote the five dysfunctions of a team. And that went really big and kept consulting and speaking and hiring people and growing and developing tools, all these different things. And then two years ago, I accidentally stumbled upon the book that you mentioned, the, the theory behind it, the six types of working genius. And we are actually convinced, Scott, that this is gonna be bigger than the five dysfunctions. All signs are that this is growing faster and it's having a bigger impact. So I'm, I'm totally excited and grateful to God that I'm doing stuff that people are finding relevant and helpful. And you're a class act and you're a great keynote speaker and a coach and it's so validating to see all of the iconic thought leaders and business leaders that lent you their reputation to endorse this book. And oh. people like Bobby Herrera and Jennifer McCollum, Dave Ramsey, John Gordon, John Maxwell. It's like a who's who of character, right? Like character and competence to quote Dr. Covey. Patrick, let's dive into your current book, The Six Types of Working Genius. To kind of level set, let me just share those and we'll get into a bit of the model. You call them the genius of wonder, invention, discernment galvanizing, enablement, and tenacity, if I got those right. Will That's you right. rewind a little bit and talk a little bit about how this model came about, how you discovered, and why of all the books you could have written that all tend to become bestsellers, why this one? Well, I never write a book that I don't feel passionate about. And, I, and frankly, almost all of them came about by accident, which what I mean is I didn't sit down to write a book, and this was the greatest accident of all. So a little over two years ago, I was in my office in the middle of the pandemic, but we were back and doing Zoom calls. And I was in a, a call that I was really excited about. And then I did a Zoom call and I was kind of grumpy about it. And then I, we ended that and I was coming up with new ideas and I was excited. And this woman that I worked with named Amy, she turned to me and she said, why are you like that? And she wasn't criticizing me. She was curious as to why 
I had uneven levels of passion and excitement about what I was doing. And I had felt that way for 20 years. So I thought, why do I come to work in my own company with people I love doing something I like? And I, I alternate between excitement and, and kind of grumpy. And I always knew that I didn't know why. And I said, I'm going to figure it out. So because of that question, four hours later, just trying to solve a problem for myself, I wasn't going to write a book or come up with a model. I, I came up with these six circles on a whiteboard. That's what I do. And it explained my frustration. And it was a huge relief. And I showed it to one of our consultants. And the next day, he was with a CEO. And the CEO was struggling. And he said, hey, I, I heard this thing yesterday. And he drew it on the board. And the guy had tears in his eyes. And he goes, that explains everything. And so I, I took it home. I wrote it on the whiteboard in my family room. And I was showing it to my, my sons and their girlfriends and their friends and, and everybody else I knew. And we were playing with it. And we realized, oh, my gosh, there's something here. And then one of the people in my company said, this is bigger than the five dysfunctions. And we decided we have to do something with this. So that's how it came about. It was because I was just trying to solve my own issue. And I realized that there was something universal here. I hope that makes sense. It, it does. You know, one of my favorite leadership books, arguably my favorite leadership book, is a mutual friend of mine, Liz Wiseman. Of course, you know, she worked I, at I know Liz, yeah. Yeah, and we had the license to Liz Multiplier's content, dear friend of mine, in the Master Mentors book. And one of the profound things that I think Liz repeats often, importantly, is that no one wants to work for the smartest person in the room. No one wants to work for the genius. In fact, your job isn't to be the genius, but to be the genius maker of others. And that was a big epiphany of me to learn that as a leader, my job is not to be the genius, but to ignite the genius in others. So I want to go there in a moment to, to also know what is the responsibility as a leader to make sure I help my team understand their genius and how I ignite that. First, let's talk about the model and these six geniuses, if you will. Uh, walk us through those and maybe even share with us which is yours. I will. So the six geniuses, I'll try to go quickly. The first one is the genius of wonder. And I don't have this one, but it's the first one that happens in any kind of work because these six geniuses are required in anything we do. If we're starting a company or launching a program or a product or planning a family vacation or building a house, every kind of work, it, it starts with somebody saying, wait a second, I wonder if there's a better way. Do we need to do this differently? What's going on around me? Is, this, is there more potential here? The genius of wonder happens at 50,000 feet, at your head in the clouds. And most people that have this as a genius don't think of it as a genius, and they've probably been kind of criticized for it in their life or even been discouraged because, oh, why are you still asking questions? But every great endeavor, Scott, starts with somebody saying, hey, is there a better way? Do we need to think differently? And that's what Amy said to me when she did. She goes, why are you like that? She didn't know. And, and that's the genius. My wife has a genius of wonder. A few of my favorite people in the world, I know them, a lot of them have, have wonder, and they're just good at asking the big question, even without an answer. The next genius is a genius of invention, and this is one of mine. These are people that wake up in the morning and want to solve a problem without any, con they're like, let me try. I, let me come up with a new idea. A, a blank whiteboard and a pen is our favorite friend, and we love to come up with new ways of doing things, even when it's not required. And so it's a genius. A lot of people think these are the real geniuses in life. They're not. It's one kind of genius. But invention is a real thing. Some people love to invent, and I can't help myself. But then there's the third genius, which is the genius of discernment. And this is a fascinating genius, and this is 
people that have great gut feel and great instinct and intuition. And it's not because they have data, they just have good judgment. They, they have pattern recognition and they're, they're integrative thinkers. And when you ask them their opinion about something, they usually have great insight. And again, it's not linear and it's not based on knowledge. There's a woman in my office who has fantastic discernment. Her name is Tracy. If my wife and I are at home and we're like, hey, should we refinance our house or where should we go on vacation? Or what do you think we should do about this big thing in our life? She'll say, ask Tracy first. And I said to Tracy, have you always been like this? Since she was a child, her friends have been asking her. She has great instinct, intuition, judgment. Discernment is a genius, and it's the third. So it's wonder, invention, discernment. But once you discern an idea and you decide it's a good one, then you have the genius of galvanizing, the G. Galvanizers wake up every morning thinking, I want to rally the troops. I love to exhort people and encourage people and get them moving. There are people that have a natural God-given talent for galvanizing. It is not one of mine. And as a result of that, this is how I discovered this model. Every day I was coming to work wanting to invent and discern, those are my two, but everyone wanted me to galvanize because I was the leader and they didn't like doing it. And even though I have to do that, I don't want to do that all the time. And it was frustrating me. And that's what we discovered in going through this. It's like, oh, I'm doing something that's not one of my God-given geniuses and I'm doing it most of the time and I was burning out. And What's amazing is I found somebody else in my team that has the genius of galvanizing. And I said, I want you to be my chief galvanizing officer. And he said, but I haven't been here long enough to earn the right to do that. I said, no, 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 it's a gift. You don't have to earn the right, it's a gift. And we all would love it if you did that. His satisfaction went up, my satisfaction went up. We were getting twice as much done in half the time because galvanizing is a genius and it wasn't one of mine. Two more to go, Scott. After you galvanize people, somebody needs to respond. And this is the genius of enablement. And it's a genius. People that have this don't, they just think they're nice or they're easily convinced to do something. It's an absolute God-given talent. There are people in the world who wake up every day hoping that somebody will say, I need your help. And they're like, let me know. I want to be there on your terms. Come alongside you and get this going. Now, enablement is one of those words that people say, well, it's not a drug addiction or an alcohol. You don't want to enable that. But enabling people to realize their dreams or to get something started is an absolute gift. And then the last genius is called tenacity. And that is there are people who love to cross things off the list, blow through obstacles to make the goal and the deadline, and to get things done. They live for that. I call them freaks because I don't have this one at all. This is one of my least. In fact, I would have never written a book if I didn't have people around me with tenacity who made me finish and who kept pushing me. I remember writing a book, one of my fables, and I got about halfway through, and I started to lose interest, because that's what I do, and I, I wrote, well, and then they died. And my editor, she said, you're joking, right? I said, no, that could happen. She said, get back in there. You're not coming out until this is finished, and the end has to be as good as the beginning. So everyone has got geniuses, but they only have two of the six. Two of these six things, and you know it's a genius because it gives you joy and energy, and you could do it for 12 hours and still be excited about your work. It's like, I, I love the cuff, coffee cup analogy. You pour coffee into, a, into a, one of those Yeti mugs and you screw it on tight and it'll hold the heat for hours and hours. You're, you're, two of these six are what we call your working competency. You're okay at it, but it doesn't feed you, but you can do it okay. 
That's where you pour coffee into a cup, put a plastic lid on it, and it'll hold that heat for a while. Two of those six things that I just went over, Scott, are what's called your working frustration. That's where you pour coffee in a cup that has a hole in the bottom and it leaks right out. And we are meant to know what our geniuses are and try to lean into those. We're meant to know what our frustrations are and do our best to avoid doing too much of that. And when we do that, our productivity, our morale, our teamwork, our, our ability to work together changes radically. We have never experienced such rapid deployment. People take this 10-minute assessment. 10 minutes later, they're looking at their team thinking, we got people in the wrong roles. So many times we've had that happen. So I don't want to go any, along any further, but that's the overview of the model. Six types of work, all that are necessary, two of them are our geniuses, and we really should work in those as much as we can. Patrick, the next time you come back to this podcast, could you bring a little passion and energy? Because this is just <laughs> actually, no, it's yeah, contagious. Down today. I mean, it's contagious. I, I have a copy of the book. I very much intend to take the assessment. I like the formula of, you know, the Yeti mug and the two and the two and the two. Pivot to a leader's responsibility. Let's just say that every member of this podcast this. team, we take the assessment, which we will, and some already have, and they've been delighted to kind of find the validation in them, right? It's very, very much like a modern day strengths finder, but your genius, easier, shorter. And what's the leader's role now? What, what happens next? Well, here's the great thing. A leader is not a leader is not a leader. A CEO is not a CEO is not a CEO. A pastor is not a pastor. A teacher is not a teacher. We all do it differently. And that's the thing about this model. Because see, I love Myers-Briggs and StrengthsFinder and DISC and all those things. And I'm a junkie for that. And I've used them throughout my career. But what we never were able to do is see the immediate link between what a person's profile was and what that meant they should specifically do in work. And that's what this does. We have people calling us and saying, I was about to fire somebody on my team. They were a cultural fit, but they, they were failing. And then we did their working genius and we immediately understood why they were failing and how to put them in a different seat on the bus. Jim Collins says, you gotta get the right people on the bus. And then you gotta put them in the right seat. And we should not be firing people who are in the wrong seat on the bus. I had a, we had a guy call and say, I've been a pastor for 20 years and I feel like a fraud. And we said, why? And he goes, cause I could never write a homily or a sermon very well. And so I thought, that's what my job is. And then he goes, then I took the working genius. After 20 years of guilt, he said, and I realized I don't have wonder or invention, which is where great homilists come from. He, and I looked at his thing. I said, yeah, but do you, you probably like counseling people. You do a lot of do one-on-one -on -one work with people, and you like to work with your team. And he goes, I love that part. I said, that's a pastor. You just need to realize God didn't give you the gift of those other things. Borrow it from somebody else. Make someone's day and say, I need you to help me with this. He went from thinking that he should have never chosen that career to realizing that, no, there's just different ways to go about that job. So I don't know if I answered your question, Scott. But. You did, very much so. I, I want to talk about how you write your books to convey your, 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 your genius. Uh, most of your books are fables. Some call them yep. parables. It's a yep. style that I don't do well at writing. We just recently wrote a fable, if you will. We call it a parable here for one of our change books. And our mutual friend, John Gordon, helped coach us on how they go well and how they go sideways. Why did, did this become your preferred writing structure? Were you, were you always, did you have an interest in fiction? Did you like storytelling? Why is the fable your super writing power? I, I appreciate that question 
Scott, because I love telling this story. When I was a kid, I watched the, the Waltons, which was a TV show, and there was a character named John Boy, and he was a writer. Well, I came from a pretty poor, lower poor family, not educated. Being a writer wasn't one of the things that was probably on my list, but I said, oh, I like that. And so I was always interested in writing. I go to college, I study economics because that was practical, but I took a screenwriting class at one of my electives. Hmm. I remember I took it pass fail because I, maybe I won't be good at it. I got an A, I was so stupid I didn't get to count that. But anyway, I got hooked. So while I went and was a management consultant, at night I wrote screenplays. And so I love writing dialogue and I love writing, I loved movies and, and story. And so fast forward, to 10 years, and I, I come up with this model with a client around leadership, and they said, you should write a book about that. And I said, oh, I don't know if I'll do that. And they said, well, somebody else is going to. I said, I think I'm going to write a book about that. So I sat down to write this book about leadership, and I, I looked at my bookshelf, and I, there were so many books that I'd never finished that I read the first few chapters of, and I, I was so sad for the authors who put all this time into it, and people didn't finish it. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I want to write a book that a person will feel compelled to finish because they'll be so interested in it. And at the end of it, they'll go, that was a good story and I just learned something that I didn't even know I was, I didn't even think I was studying. And, and so I did that and an, a, a publisher saw it kind of by accident and said, we like this and we want to publish it. And then that led to, to that was kind of my thing. Um, so I love movies, I love dialogue. And my stories are really dialogue intensive. And I would say that we call them parables, but they're, they're pretty edgy. And I tr my favorite thing is when people say, I think you were sitting in our meeting because that's exactly what happens when we get together. So I, I, I try to make them very realistic. And, um, and that's just something I love to do. What a blessing I get to use my passion for writing and my passion for leadership and organizations. And people seem to like it, so I get to keep doing it. You know, I would validate you on that. I think one of your superpowers, and I've read all of your books, is... Oh, that's uh, great. Have you read all of my books, Patrick, or should I send them to you for, for a second copy? You know, I just finished my third round of all of your books. You, you know what? You're, you're, <laughs> it's, it's, it's appreciated. You have a superpower. No, but man, you are a man after my heart because all of the things you write about are the things I'm... Like the messy... Yeah, I, I love you. the whole thing, and Look everyone you deserves researching a, the host. Look at that! Everyone deserves a great manager. That's like I, I had an idea that I'll share with you about that. Um, I, 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 those are the very things. So you and I are m brothers from another mother. You know, you are making up ground. You share a superpower with another good friend of mine, Seth Godin. Uh, Seth's been on several times, endorsed my books. I, an absolute genius, like you, an abundant person. And, and, and he is an iconoclast. He call himself that, right? He's a challenger. You and Seth, I call him this, this, the stethoscope, like a stethoscope. All his blogs, <laughs> all of his writings are if he has a stethoscope on all of our boardrooms. Like, oh my gosh, was he in our company? I mean, when Seth sends out a blog every day for like how many decades now, people, they text it around and say, oh my gosh, can you believe how how prescient this is. We talked about it yesterday. You have that superpower. How do you keep your finger on the pulse to know what's happening in the great resignation and the reevaluation and the quiet quitting and what's next? How do you keep your skills, your own Patrick Scope, fine-tuned? It's a, it's a great question. I've never really had that asked of me, but I think what I would say is there's a few things. First of all, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. So, so even if I'm not trying, I'm, I'm 
I'm absorbing things because I'm interested and I ask questions and I watch and I, I like that. Um, second, I live it in my own company. And so many of the things that we do, we're like, I bet this is universal. And we, we go through that. Third, I, I, I'm sure Seth has a genius, one of the six working geniuses. And when you have discernment, you kind of look at things and you go, oh, yeah, I think that's what's happening. That's the pattern. That's, that's the essence of this. And so it's, it's like curation and, and instinct. So Seth knows how to look at something and say, this is the heart of the challenge. And other people go, how did you know that? Now, Jim Collins is a friend of mine. I mean, uh, 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 over the years, and a really good guy, but he's a researcher. He's a data guy. And I remember the first time I met him, I said, Jim, I got to tell you, I'm a little worried. He said, why? And I said, because I don't do quantitative research like you do. And, and he goes, it doesn't matter. Face validity is everything. And whether you discover it in the field and you see patterns and then you call them out and other people say, yes, that's it, that's me. Or whether you take a stack of data and sit in a room for weeks, crunching numbers and looking for the trend, he said, it's all real. And so Seth and I are both discerners, I'm, I'm sure. Patrick, fa fa fast forward a day, and let's just say that of the millions of people that are watching this podcast, they all decide to take this assessment, a 10-minute assessment at uh, workinggenius.com. And now everybody knows what their two, two, and two are in terms of their genius. Hot cup, warm cup, soon to be empty cup. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about each of these six geniuses from the perspective of the leader. Let's just say that I am the leader and I have a team. How do I now lead someone different that discovers one of their geniuses is wonder. Give us a minute on this, I wanna go through the six. How does the leader behave differently leading someone with the genius of wonder? I love it. And by the way, when we put this together, Scott, we thought it was an individual tool, and right away we said, oh wait, it's actually a team thing. Sure. So we developed a team map, because when we, I was just with a very prominent CEO and executive team the other day, and we did their team map and we looked at it, and everyone on their team hated wonder. <laughs> except for one person. And so, so you look at this and the team map jumps out at you. So I'm glad you asked it this way. So if I'm managing somebody and they have wonder, when they're asking questions or saying, hey, what about this? I, I don't know, I've been thinking about this. Is this the best thing? There's two things to do. First of all, understand that they're doing that because they care and that's how they love. That's how they care. Secondly, though, if you're further down the process, because work, if you're in the enablement and tenacity part of work, which means you're landing the plane, you sometimes you need to say to them, hey, I love your wonder, but we're out of the wonder phase and we need to be focused on this other part of the work. See, so not every, like I like to invent things. My wife says, I want you to help me clean the garage. And I'm like, ooh, I can come up with a new system. And she says, I don't want your invention. I want you to help me do tenacity work and just finish. <laughs> so it gives you vocabulary where you can honor somebody and people on a team will start giving each other feedback. They're like, oh man, we need your enablement right now. Or, hey, I love that you're an inventor, but this is not the invention phase anymore. And people don't take it as a criticism. In fact, they're honored. It's just a way to say, that's not what we're looking for. So a person with wonder, if they're asking questions, honor that. But if it's not the right time, you can also say, hey, yeah, let's put the W away for a while. Speed round, how does a leader best lead someone with invention? Oh man, ask them questions and give them the freedom to try things and know that just because they're inventing doesn't mean they think it's right. I, I'm always saying to people, hey, I'm inventing here. I'm not galvanizing you. So I'm telling you an idea I have. So I'm not telling you to go out and implement it. I want your discernment. I want you to react to it. 
And so it's like, let people throw things against the wall and praise them for it and encourage them to do it. And then when that phase is over, then you go into other things. Leading someone with the genius of discernment. Ooh, this is, I, nobody's asked me this like this, but trust their gut a little bit. In other words, it drives it to discern, discerners are going to go, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the right answer right here. And, and people are going to go, prove it. And they're going to go, I can't. They go, then I'm not going to listen to it. Discern, people that have discernment, you should assume when a, some, when a person has D and they say, I think this is the answer, go, you're probably right. Let's try to figure that out. Let's, let's go deeper. So trust their gut. Leading someone with the working genius of galvanizing. Let them, get them in front of people and let them inspire others. And again, it doesn't matter what their title is. If that's a genius they have, find a way to tap into that genius and let them be in front of people and, and leading the charge. Leading someone with the working genius of enablement. Ooh, know this. They're going to say yes and want to help you all the time. And you need to be careful not to burn them out because their first answer is yes. Their second answer is yes. And then a few minutes later, they're all by themselves and going, ooh, should I have said yes to that? So really challenge them to say, oh, I was with a woman, a client the other day, and she said, I'm going to drive you to the airport. And I said, no, I can get a car. And she goes, no, I want to drive you. I said, you're an, you're an enablement person. You need to go home with your kids. I can get a car. And she was like, okay. Okay, I'll go home. <laughs> so remember, their inclination is to say yes. It doesn't mean you should always ask them to. And lastly, those with the working genius of tenacity. Don't put them in a situation where a project can't get finished. See, it doesn't bother me when I'm like, hey, let's work on this. And if they can't see the end and they don't think that there's ever going to be one, they're going to be frustrated. And just because I'm patient enough to get halfway through a book and go, oh, it'll be fine, a tenacious person is going to say, no, please, please show me that this can get done and that you're serious about it and let me help you take it through to the end. Patrick, uh, earlier you alluded to your marital problems that manifest in the garage with your wife. Uh, talk about how these working geniuses apply outside of the workplace. Okay. I I'm so glad you – I was thinking, I hope you get to this because we had a guy write to me and, and say – right after we came out with the model – and he said, I thought my wife hated me. And we actually talked to him later and he laughed about it. He goes, I really did because every time I came up with, the, with the, I, I'd have a dream and she would kind of, it seemed like she was against whatever I came up with. He said, on our anniversary, we did the working genius. One of my geniuses is invention. Hers is discernment. So, and she said to him, honey, when you come up with a new idea, the way I love you is to go, hey, but I don't think this part of it will work. And you might need to work on this. And he, he thought she was against him. She said, that's how I love you. It changed their marriage. In my life with my wife, she's a WI, which is wonder and invention, the first two. That's the creative dreamer. That's what we call their type. I'm an ID, which is invention and discernment, which is the, which is the um, I'm called the, Matt, what, is the, what do you call me? Oh, I have it right here. I, I remember but, but, but yet you didn't give Matt a co-author credit on the book. No, I dedicated it to him. Oh, now. there you go. Okay. <laughs> but so, oh, I'm the um, discerning ideator. That's what we call me. Discriminating ideator. That's what I am. And that means, so we like to come up with new ideas. She can, I uh, can do that. We've written musicals and invented games and done all this stuff. Neither of us have in tenacity. We don't like to finish things. And... I used to be really bummed when I'd come home and the bills didn't get paid on time or something else happened. And, and it was sad. I mean, I, I don't want to be silly, silly, but I'd be like, how come this isn't happening? And when we figured this out, I was like, oh my gosh, Laura, you've been working outside of your genius in one of your frustrations for so long. And you were taking one for the team. You were never going to love it or be awesome at it. 
and I want to shift everything I've said to gratitude. And just this morning, she said to me, hey, you wrote something down for the gardener. I, I lost it. And we laughed, and I said, I'm going to celebrate that. That's what we do here. <laughs> and then she found it. She goes, aha, I did it. <laughs> so we now have grace for one another because I was asking her to do work at home that I was terrible at too, and I didn't realize it. So it, we have come to understand and appreciate each other and not feel guilty and not feel judgmental. That's the thing about this model. It reduces guilt and, frust and, and judgment of people because you really understand who they are. St. Francis of Assisi once said, seek to understand others more than to be understood. And when you understand people, you're not gonna criticize them or fire them or write them off. You're gonna actually understand why they're struggling and make adjustments. Patrick, it's an excellent adaptation. As you were telling this story about your wife, I was thinking about my wife, Stephanie. We have three young boys that are 8, 10, and 12. Uh, wow. Different podcast, different therapy session. But I have four my, boys. <laughs> my, you, have, you have four boys, don't you? Can't God imagine. Ble God bless your wife. Can't imagine. Uh, but my wife will meet someone, whether it's at church or at a club or at a country club, not a, you know, hip-hop yeah. dance club. Those are the days. <laughs> but my wife will say to me in private, yeah, I get a bad feeling about that person or that person creeps me out. And I'm like, seriously, you saw them across the church and they creep you out? I mean, come on. I'm not selling Stephanie out. But the fact of the matter is it frustrates me because I feel like she's making snap judgments. She's usually always right, not at church per ah. se. But you're right. I think she has this gift of discernment that I tend right. to disregard because I don't value it and probably don't have it as much. And Perhaps you've saved my marriage through better understanding what one of my wife's geniuses is, definitely having her take the quiz and determining if that's one or not. I got to think it is. Oh, yeah. And, and when a person has discernment and they can't explain why they feel the same because it's not based on data. Yes. And, and we do this in my life, too. And I've said to my wife in a good way lately, hey, Laura, remember that gift of discernment I have? Sometimes I see these things and I can't explain it. And I'd like you to kind of trust it a little bit and then we'll, we'll explore it together. And if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to say so. And she's now, she literally will come to me at home and say, I need your discernment. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I, every time somebody asks you for your genius, you're so happy. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of tacky flaunting your marital success with this. <laughs> oh yeah, talk about messy. The mess that leads to success. The best, you know, I want to write a book called, for, for parents called The Slightly Above Average Parent because that should be our goal. One of my books will be called Parenting Mess to Launch Success. I'll let yes, you Yes, because uh, when we think it's perfect, we are, we are riddled with guilt because no, the best families are messy. I may allow you to invite uh, or write the forward to that book. Okay, let's land this plane, <laughs> Patrick. Talk about the assessment. How do we find it? How do we use it? How do we, uh, how do we uh, uh, discern the results of it? So if you go to workinggenius.com, working, there's two G's in the middle, workinggenius.com. We priced it at 25 bucks. Dave Ramsey is a friend of mine and a financial genius. And he said, Pat, you should have charged so much more for this because it's really valuable. But we want every 19-year-old to take it. We want every retiree to take it. We want somebody in a mid-management job. We want teams to use it. We don't want it to be overbearing. So it's a $25 assessment. The results are overwhelming. People look at them and go, oh my gosh, Finally, I understand why I've struggled at that job. I failed at my first job out of college. I, I felt terrible at it. I know why now. It was totally wrong for me. So go to workinggenius.com. Take the test. It takes 10 minutes to take it. There's a great um, 
set of results that come, we've really worked on that. And all those phrases for the combinations that different people have are there, and it really helps people apply it. And, there's the, and, then, and then there's the team. Teams can do it and get a team map and see where their big gaps are and where, they're, where they have a lot of strength. The iconic author, the master of the fable, the now best-selling author of the new book, The Six Types of Working Genius, love the tagline, a better way to understand your genius, your gifts, your frustrations, and your team, the assessments at workinggenius.com, two Gs. Remind us again, your two geniuses, wonder and... No, no, my wife is wonder and invention. Mine is invention and discernment. Invention and discernment, that's right, yeah. So I love to come up with new ideas and evaluate them, and that's my favorite thing. Patrick, you're a prolific author, speaker. What's next for you? Um, there's a few things. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at wounds and, and how they affect, affect leaders and people in the workforce and in their lives. Wow. So I'm going to be looking, diving into wounds, woundedness. Patrick, you're a class act. I'm sorry it took us 250 episodes to get you on. You came as soon as we asked. And so I, again, appreciate your abundance mentality. Dr. Covey would have loved Maybe he does love looking down on us that you're now on the on leadership roster. Thank you for your time today. You're a class act. Scott, I can't wait to talk to you again. God bless you. Look forward to it. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>